This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Join me every Saturday as we enter the literary life. With me on my very first episode of The Literary Life is my good friend Dave Barry. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning essayist and best-selling author. Dave and I will be right back. You're listening to The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Welcome back. Today, we have Dave Barry, one of the nicest, funniest, twisted, generous people I've known. He writes books, columns, screenplays, haggadahs, and just about every form of writing that exists. And for fun, he plays a killer guitar. He lives not far from our store, and he's here with me now. I'm here in the cafe drinking a latte with almond milk, and Dave's having his signature Diet Coke. <laughs> Welcome, Dave. I'd like to think it's my signature, because then I would probably get paid, but I don't think that's going to happen. Well, but maybe we if, can work out a deal. Yeah, if anybody from deal. Coke is listening, you know, anyway. Well, you know, I, I'm going to tell you, I, I probably have told you this before, but before being a bookseller, I taught high school. I taught high school English. And what they always tell you in high school English is always have something in your back pocket when you've run out of things to tell your class and you look up and there's still 15 minutes on the clock. You never let there be dead time. It's like, I guess, being on radio in a sense. So the thing I would always have in my back pocket was one of your columns. And I think I introduced hundreds of high school kids from Southridge High to your columns back in the day. And I think we can trace the decline of the American educational system to that very practice. But you know, thank you. Though, but on my account, I mean, it's good for me, so thank it you. It was really great. I mean, these were kids from all over, and you nailed it with every single column. And at the time, you weren't even living in Miami. That's which right. Which was even interesting. So then I became a bookseller. And I understood, really, the power that you had here in Miami and eventually around the country. When, and I've, uh, I've said this many times, but I was, as you know, the, I would sort of uh, uh, book the book fair, the Miami book fair, and I would be the booker for it. And one day we booked you into a room. We didn't have the large auditorium at that time. We booked you into a room that sat probably about 250 people. And in those days, we would have a loudspeaker saying, who's speaking in what room? And all of a sudden, it was, Dave Barry will be in room 2106 at 1.30. The entire fair tried to empty into that room at that time. And I said, man. And again, you weren't living in Miami. I think, what was the first book that you had written at that time? I don't even they remember. Were the, they were yeah, the square were books. Rodale Press. Right. It's it was like, like Babies and Others had. Something like that, or Homes and Other Black Holes. How did those books come about? How did I, those happen? I, I, I had been writing a newspaper column. For, I started with a newspaper in, in Westchester, Pennsylvania, called The Daily Local News. And I was writing a column for them that they ran once a week. 
And not too far from Westchester is uh, Emmaus, Pennsylvania, which is where the Rodale Press is located. And some editor there at Rodale Press, you know, put down his bong and decided that (laughs) they should run a humor column. And this is like, I think the first magazine that they ran to me in was called New Shelter, which I'm sure doesn't exist anymore. But that was back when like, like geodesic. How could you heat your geodesic dome with (laughs) your goat dung? You know, that was that kind of like little off the grid kind of yeah. You know, and very Birkenstocky, but they wouldn't even they would make their own Birkenstock. You know, they they probably look at Birkenstock as like a giant corporation. So. So, these, but they would this, this, they would run my column. They, they had me write columns like freelance. That would run at the end of the magazine, end of New Shelter magazine. And this run lasted for approximately I don't know eight or nine issues. At which point, the the volume of mail from outraged goat dung eating yurt owners. Right. I don't know, because it's like, how dare you? Because everything, of course, I wrote was a lie. And, you know, I was, you know, that was my, my basic approach to everything was to just lie a lot. And, uh, and, and, but, but there was an editor up there, somebody who said, well, you know, maybe, he, you know, we, we've never published a humor book. Cause like all of the Rodale press books back then were like vitamin B12, exactly. you know, and it would be like 400 pages. The point of which was vitamin B12 is right. good, you know? So, and you know what it came up to where they made all their money, ironically, is in the South beach diet that oh, was published right, yeah, by yeah. Rodale eventually. Yeah. So anyway, they, they, they. They approached me and said, would you be interested in writing a humor book? And I said, sure. And I had never uh, written any books at that point. I was just doing this little humor column. And they had never published a humor writer. And so they they published, um, I think the first book was called... Uh, Taming of the Screw. Taming of the Screw. I remember that. Which was a do-it-yourself, you know, (laughs) where everything was wrong. And I ended up on this kind of weird, strange... I've since that time been on millions of book tours. That was my first one. I've been on millions of TV, radio shows. That was my first... The first TV show that I got on for that book... Which which was the first humor book they had ever published was the Johnny Carson Show. Whoa! Yeah, they. I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, somehow the Taming Whoa. of the Screw ended up in the in the hands of this Booker out there named Shirley Wood. I so think. this was like in the early eighties, early eighties, early eighties. Wow! And uh, and uh, you know. It was just like a miraculous thing. And they, they flew me out, you know, they, uh, they gave me, Shirley Wood came into my, uh, my little green room. Right, I was right. next to the Pointer Sisters. It was me, wow. the Pointer Sisters, and Dick Cabot. We were the oh big my guests God. that night. And, and, uh, she, and I'm sitting there alone. And meanwhile, the next door, the Pointer Sisters have hairdressers and, you know, groupies and whatever. And I'm all alone in my little right. room. And she comes in with a giant tumbler full of wine. And she goes, drink this. <laughs> It'll make Whoa. you funnier. You know, Whoa. so I drank my wine, went out, you know, here's, you know. Did you do like a monologue? Or no, was no, it, no, it was no, just, no, no. God, they would never, yeah, I was not a stand-up comic. No, they just sent me out there and um, I, uh, they still show this, this interview every I, now and then. I'm going to go look at YouTube. <laughs> anyway. That's the next so thing I, I'm doing. I go doing. out there and it goes just great, you know, the I, and I thought when I coming when I came off, I thought, "Wow, this is really easy television." Now, having now gone through a million interviews and looking back on that, I was it went great because Johnny Carson was doing the interview, and he was fantastically good at setting me up, wow. at getting just the right answer, at following up with another joke, whatever. And so it was. Anyway, it was really fun. that that kind of launched my career in Rodale Press. Um, 
Well, that book, that, you know, when, when we just opened, that was a bestseller for us at that point, as it was in many places. Yeah, I think I'm still their number one humor author, yeah. <laughs> Rodell Fred. Well, I don't even know if they still exist. You may be their yeah, only I'm humor pretty sure that's no, true. No, actually, they, they do exist, but they've been subsumed into some larger publisher. I don't yeah. know which one. But they've gone through, but they made a, a huge... And they've gone through all the vitamins. Right? After B12, B13, B14, they have all series. They've done them all. I love hearing about those early days. You know, there's a quote that that I've always mentioned. I've always it's a quote that's always stuck with me, and it was a quote from the zoo story. Edward Albee wrote this quote. Uh, I mean, wrote the play and this quote. There are two guys sitting on a bench in a park, and one and they're kind of like two very disparate kinds of people, and then they strike up a, a conversation, and one and one is trying to explain his life, and he goes, he says, you know, sometimes you have to go a long way out of your way to come back um, a short distance the right way. And I've always, that's always stuck in my mind about people taking these long life sort of patterns. Um, you've taken the road less traveled. Did you ever think, did you, did you go a long way out of your way to get to where you are right now? Yeah, my career has been entirely accidental. I get asked a lot by younger people, how do you know, do you become a human writer? And, and I said, well, don't, don't do the way I did it because, I mean, I had no, no plan. But I, I went to work in a newspaper out of college, this little paper called the Daily Local News. And um, I was there and then I went to the Associated Press. And so far, so good. This would be a traditional path to become a right. humor columnist. Um, and then I, I, I was at the AP, Associated Press in Philadelphia, and I did not like it. It was, I, I call it the word army. You know, it, the goal at the AP is that nobody could tell which writer wrote what story. It's like, you know, as long as everybody. So there's no personality. Not zero. Like, they don't want it. And that's not their, that's not what they do. Right. And I get that. But I hated it. And it, while I was unhappily at the AP in Philly, uh, a friend of mine's father uh, had a heart attack and he needed somebody to replace him in his business, which was teaching effective writing seminars to business people, which I knew nothing about. So it was like technical writing. Yeah. Well, sense. no, what it was, was you would go to a group of engineers or accountants or computer programmers or chemists, people who had to write reports, but were not the writers. Right, right. And I wasn't teaching them technical. Or they knew all the technical stuff. So you were teaching them how to put it into a... I was teaching the simplest things in the world, right. Mitchell. I was saying, like, use normal language. If you've discovered something important, put that in the first paragraph. Wow. Which is, like, totally not... That's heretical in the business world, where <laughs> right. you never put anything important in the first paragraph. Because right. then people can find it. You know, <laughs> They just don't think about it. Um, anyway, so I did that. So I'm like going around the country to Union Carbide and DuPont and, you know, Sperry Univac, all these companies. They're probably all out of business now, partly because of me, I think. Do you ever run into people? <laughs> Every who, now and then over the years. Yes, I have. That would be amazing. And I, I was, I would, so I was now completely out of the newspaper business and, and I, several things happened that made it good. And although I never would have predicted this. I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life teaching effective writing seminars to, you know, accountants. Right. You know, and I would have been okay with it. But I, I was traveling a lot. So I had a lot of spare time. I was in hotels and airports. And I would buy a legal pad and, and just would write columns, um, write humor columns. 
And oh, you just did that as just yeah, because you love doing that. Because it was like something to do, and right. and I would send them back to the daily local news in Westchester, Pennsylvania, where I'd started out, and they would print them every right. once a week, uh, for and they paid me twenty two dollars per week to write wow. this column. So that was one thing that was happening is I was suddenly I had time to write, and I was writing whatever I wanted because right. I didn't work for the newspaper. Right. I was just selling them this column. Another thing is I was no longer at all uh, connected with journalism, which meant I was looking at the world in a little different way. Like if you're a journalist and you're writing columns, you're probably going to write about politics, government, that kind of thing, because that's what journalists are connected with. And, you know, that's you, you have access to the government. It's there for you. And journalists tend to be attracted to it. But when I was I was out there, it was a completely different world. I was going to Kinston, North Carolina and Charleston, West Virginia. Wow. All these, you know, what I would call America, <laughs> where people worked in factories. And you know, so right. it was a different perspective that I, as a, you know, liberal arts college student and not been and then journalists had just not been exposed to right. and I found oh geez there's a lot of really smart people doing things out here that had nothing to do with journalism or government <laughs> you know they're just you know they're you know to be an engineer takes a lot of training and expertise right. and so, so anyway I, I sort of got a different perspective on the world from that um and then the third thing that happened as a result that turned out to be very useful to me was since I was walking into rooms of like 32 people who did not want to be there. You know, if, if you want a really unhappy audience, it's a Monday morning and a bunch of people who are, you know, who all have projects to work on. And then, sure. and then you, you know, it's this, this guy who looked like he was, I looked like I was 10 years old. I grew a mustache. <laughs> so I look older. I look like a 10 year old with a mustache. He's going to talk to you about writing for a week. Oh, you know, so they didn't like, nobody was looking forward to this. So I learned to do that. I learned to keep, be, keep, uh, keep the audience's attention right. and to be, uh, to use humor. I mean, all my examples of bad writing over the years became funny examples, right. and I would present them in a fun, which turned out to be, as you know, an incredibly useful skill later in life when you're a writer and you spent your whole life in front of your your, your computer writing, and then and you think you're done when you finish your book, but you're not, because right. the real work is now to go out and talk to people about it. And many writers have a lot of trouble doing that, facing audiences, especially if you're at a bookstore and nobody shows up. Not that that ever happens here, <laughs> but you know where you can you go on with the show. You learn, and I learned that skill too. So right. In the end, this weird decision to leave journalism altogether and work for this little company to teach effective writing seminars really helped me become a humor writer, both the writing and the presentation of the writing. And then after a few years of that, that little column got noticed by the Philadelphia Inquirer and then the Chicago Tribune, then the Miami Herald. And then gradually these papers started wanting to my writing and, and then I'm shortening the story, but then they, I was offered jobs. Syndicated. And yeah. And, jobs. Like, and I became a full-time humor but writer. I want to go back to one thing. I think I would argue that it's not an accident that that happened. That what happened for you... Think you God wanted me to teach no, effective no. writing seminars yeah. to... You and I share the same <laughs> okay. religious belief. Yeah. Yeah. But no, what, what I would say is that that time gave you the opportunity to develop something that was really natural in you. So I want to get to the point of you must have always had that humor gene in you. Absolutely. At some point. Yeah, no, well, I can see you being a sixth grader. You probably were keeping I was, the classroom I, I was in such stitches. A, are we allowed to... Well, I, I don't know what language we got. Uh, 
I'm being told I can say asshole <laughs> by Carmen, the producer. So if any, anybody has a problem with this, but I was an asshole when I was, a, I mean, in a good way, I thought I was funny, but I, I would, you know, I was literally elected class clown of Pleasantville High School class. Right? Yes. So, so yeah. And, and my family, um, valued humor above any other quality. My parents were both funny people. My mom especially was very funny, right. very darkly funny. And, um, so it was encouraged, and I always was interested in it. I, all the authors that I read were like Robert Benchley and P.G. Woodhouse, and right. you know I loved Art Buckwell. I loved humor writing when I was right. a kid. Uh, so yeah, I was always and I, and when I could, when I wrote for my high school paper and, and my college paper, I only wrote humor. That's what I wanted to do. I just didn't see it as a career. If somebody had told me you can do that for a living, it might have made I would it have, hard. Probably would have, yeah, because I, I would have failed early on. As it was, I was in my, you know, like, 30s before right. I really was making a living that way. Right. And then it was like, how did this happen? You right. know, I was going to be an effective writing instructor. Right, right, right. Well, you once had, you have what I think is one of the great definitions of humor. Do you remember what it is that you've said about humor? If, if I recall correctly, it's, it's the awareness, a sense of humor is the extent to which you realize you're trapped in a world that is devoid of reason and fairness, and it's a dangerous, violent place, and there's basically two possible ways to react to the, our awareness of it. I mean, right. animals don't have to deal with that because they don't they understand. They don't remember. Yeah, and they don't know that there's any other possibility. Right. Human beings know that the world's unfair and we're going to die. So there are two basic reactions, and I think they're both fairly understandable. One is religion. You're not really going to—it's really fair. There's a, there's a guiding hand behind all this, and you're not really going to die. You're still going to be around forever, and, you know, it's going to be great. And the other is, to me, the more rational response to make fun of it, you know, to just—to release that tension by, we have invented this thing called humor— to, to deal with that, you know, total irrationality of the world we live in. And I think most people have a sense of humor. And I don't think it's like a, an add-on. I think it's like an absolutely essential element of human consciousness to be able to see humor in it. It's a sense of survival. You have no other way to release the tension you're going right. to feel. And so, and I feel terribly sorry for people and there are such people who have no sense of humor because they're just the most unhappy people they you, are you indeed. cannot be a happy person with no sense of humor in my view unless you're like utterly like totally religious devout and you're just you know big time believer and and you can ignore all the physical evidence around you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, shut all that out right. if, if you can't do that you gotta have a sense of humor you absolutely do and i'm being told that we're going to take a short break Let's we'll take a short be, we'll break. Be back here in diet, just a we're going to take a pause and have a diet take coke. A diet coke, and we'll be starting I'm in just a second. Diet coke. We're back. Uh, my guest is Dave Barry, and uh, uh, he's a good friend. And uh, we're all getting to learn more about uh, Dave before Miami. And uh, for me, it's fascinating to know about all this. And it leads me to the next question is, how did you get to Miami? How did that happen? The uh, Miami Herald had a Sunday magazine called Tropic Magazine, as most uh, big newspapers did in those days. And uh, they ha the, the way they got ideas was they, they had a, an exchange system. So at, at each magazine you would get every other Sunday magazine and they would send um, one to you. So they, they were always looking at each other's stories. So in 1981, I wrote an essay for the um, Philadelphia Inquirer, Sunday magazine, uh, about natural childbirth. Uh, my son was born in 1980. 
And at the time, um, baby boomers, of whom I'm one, had discovered childbirth. And the way we do, like nobody had ever thought to have children, certainly before we did it, certainly not the way we did it. It used to be they just went out and had a baby, you know, but not us. No, Cerie Bob, we had classes and, you know, nah, we had a, you know, drug free and all. Breathe. 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 Yeah. And so I, I wrote a, I'm not a long, long form essay, basically contrasting the classes with the calmness and the breathing with the actual physical act of childbirth, which was, <laughs> and, and how, you know, anyway, as it happened, every single newspaper editor in the United States was having babies around the same time. We're all the same age. We're all in early thirties. Everybody was going to the same stage as I was. And that, that essay that ran in the Inquirer just it blew up. There was no such thing as viral then because we didn't have the internet, but it was viral in the newspaper right. industry. And almost everybody Sunday magazine either reprinted all of it or, or some of it. Uh, it was if there was one moment in, that changed my career, if one thing that was that. Um, and they all started saying, "What you know? What else have you written?" And and this is when I really was starting to transition. This is when I was able to leave the effective writing seminar business right. and become a human writer. One of the papers that was interested was uh, the, the Miami Herald, and the editor there, the assistant the editor, was a guy named Gene, Gene Weingarten. Weingarten yeah. And uh, Gene just was obsessed with hiring me here for the Miami Herald, and. The weird thing was, at the time, the, the more prestigious paper was the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, which was a multiple Pulitzer Prize-winning paper, right. paper edited by Gene Roberts. It was one of the hot papers in the country. The Herald was a good paper, but it was not the hot paper. Right. And both of them at the same time offered me jobs. Wow. And everybody I knew said I should go to work for the, the Philadelphia Inquirer. And Gene Roberts, who was a legendary editor, right. took me out for the longest dinner in my life and got me drunk and, and didn't let me leave. And, you know, was, was wooing you. Flattering, very yeah. flattering. And um, and the uh, the Herald was compl- incompetent. Gene Weingarten, who didn't even really know his way around. <laughs> and they flew me down. We spent half the time I was down here lost in Hialeah, you know. And so it was totally clear, obvious that I should go to work for the Philadelphia Inquirer. I lived in Philadelphia area and I didn't live anywhere near my, I've never been to my, so, but I really liked Gene and the, the Inquirer was basically saying, we'd like you to write three columns a week with some local slant, whatever. Right. And the, uh, and the Herald was saying, I don't care. Gene said, I don't care what you do. Wow. You can do anything you want. And it just seemed like a, you know, so I followed my gut. And and took a job at the Herald, and the one condition I had was that I wasn't going to ever move to Miami, <laughs> because I was living in this idyllic little community in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. You know, pine trees and two acres, right. and you know, dog running around. And, everything. and I'd come to Miami, and there were like machine gun holes in the car, in the rental car. You so know, that was like, like the mid eighties. The cocaine, cocaine era was going. Yeah, it was nineteen eighty three. Right. So I mean, it was the cocaine thing was. So those, how did you keep up with stuff that was happening? Well, you would read the paper and then what I did riff was, off of that. It was a combination way. of yes, they uh, they sent me the Herald. You know, I got it every day, uh, and and I came down to visit regularly. Like I would come every couple of months to Miami to do stories, whatever, right. and and. Uh, I fell in love with Miami, you know, even weird as it was, I got to know the city better. I got to know the people down here better. And I thought this is just really kind of more interesting than Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. Right. So in 1986, um, I moved here. Didn't 80, have to. It was but that early. It was 86. 86, yeah. And I've been here ever since. So. Well, and you've made some of your closest friendships here. Oh, with, yeah. I, I mean, mean, even in the paper, like Carl Heiss and yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. All my, I you know. really, all my, 
I have a few really close friends that don't live here, but almost yeah. all my friends like you yes. are people from here. And the tropic, tropic became such a heart and soul. It was of what Miami was at tr- that. Somebody time. should someday. Some do of the a, great writing. Came oh out my of god! Tropic. Somebody should do a book or a movie someday about Tropic Magazine. That was the most amazing magazine. Talk about it a little bit. Who were some of the people? Joe Lockenbach, Madeline Blaze, who right, won a Pulitzer won a Prize Pulitzer. when she was there. John Dorsey was an incredible writer. Um, Meg Laughlin, uh, Tom Tom Schroeder. Tom Schroeder became uh, the editor. Ultimately, Gene, who was an amazing editor. And they also did great things with like photography and you know. Yeah, Michael, I feel like I'm Michael le- Carlback. Le- yeah, oh my. And they would do anything. I right. mean, every other magazine was constrained by either the management or just the natural, you know, instincts of the editors. We we were edited by Gene Weingarten, a lunatic. Right. Just, he, would do, he would just do any whatever they wanted him to do. He would do the what, opposite. Gene, Gene went on to go to the Washington Post. Washington Post, Post right? yeah, where he won there. two Pulitzer prizes, right. by the way, for writing features. Yeah, and he became a humor columnist, which he still is right. up there. But it was just a magical place in time. Miami was, you know, it's always been crazy, and there's always been a lot of stories. But Tropic, for for like maybe ten years there, could do anything oh, it, it wanted. Was, it was so amazing. And then and then you galvanized the whole community through little side things that had to have come out of your brain, like the Tropic we Hunt. Did the Tropic Hunt, which is... Where did that come from? <laughs> just, Explain what that is. It's a gigantic um, puzzle that we set up in some And you would take area. over a part of the city. Yeah, yeah. And we and people, we bring thousands of people show up and run around trying to figure out what we're, what we've created. Um, that was actually an idea of a guy named Dave Harris who did, did it as a fundraiser for a temple in Kendall. <laughs> Is that what yeah, it was originally? Yeah, that's how it gets started. I didn't and realize we that. we adapted it. To, he would do it for, I think, 160 people. Uh, we had, we made it so, you know, the whole city could do it. Wow. Um, but yeah, and we just, we did this thing like, okay, this is just pops into my brain. But when, um, Miami got the Miami heat, the NBA basketball team, the next year, Orlando got the Orlando magic and both teams were terrible because they were both new teams. In the NBA. We decided there should be a rivalry between the two teams and I was going to start it. So I went up to Orlando and, and came back and just wrote the most vicious, oh, right imaginable about story about Orlando. Right. The phrase low forehead, nose picking yahoos appeared probably 400 <laughs> times in there. And the cover, which became a, a very controversial down here, was, of course, Gene Weingarten's idea was me in a heat jersey spinning a basketball on my finger. Guess which finger? <laughs> and, it's a, and that was a cover of the magazine. Wow. And it almost got the editor of the Miami Herald fired, Janet Chesmer, because she foolishly agreed to let Gene do that. And it just... Some community. Did, did Orlando retaliate? Well, that was the great part. Then, then um, Orlando, you know, they had to respond. And at the time, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy who was the uh, great guy, and I'm blanking on his name, who was the uh, general manager up right. there. And he, he was totally into it. And so anyway, we had this uh, grudge game where we we held a contest. and People could come up with anti-Orlando cheers. The best ones, we would get a bus and drive to Orlando and appear and appear to be a buddy of mine up there. Bob Morris was a columnist. Oh yeah, I, I know Bob. And Bob, Bob, and and he uh, became a novelist. Yeah, as well. they, they got us. They got us a section of, of seating up there for this big game between the Magic and the the Heat. So we got in this bus. All these people <laughs> drove up there, and we had to stop on the way to get more alcohol. <laughs> it's like we we ran out. We had a lot of alcohol when we got on the bus. We ran out of it halfway up and had to get more. So it was quite the night. Anyway, but we go to we show up at the uh, arena, and they have they have. They, they've cordoned off an area for us with crime tape for the Miami. They had all these anti-Miami signs. They'd spread baking soda all over the place to make it look to like, like cocaine. cocaine. <laughs> 
And um, and then we had a halftime match, uh, some kind of stupid, you know, uh, athletic competition between us and them, which we lost because we were drunk. But <laughs> a, a, anyway. That was that was the magazine that doing was, that. That was like you know I don't even know if that appeared was, in the magazine. It was just fun. It's so, like you worked for. You know, it was it's like, like working for um, the Harvard Lampoon. It or, was a dream. Or National Lampoon. It was like a dream. Like I, I did a story on New York called "Can New York Save Itself?" Which right. actually I won a Pulitzer Prize in part because of that story. But it was just like this guy go to New York and make fun of it. You and know? this stuff about. Was it South Dakota or North Dakota? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I have, a, I have a sewage lifting station named after me in Grand Forks, North Dakota. That's right. <laughs> Not many people can say that. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Well, and, and also what's, what came out of that, and, you know, sadly, Tropic is no longer with us. Oh, no, but really no Sunday magazines left except for the New York Times. That's, that's it. That's the only one. And, but what happened is some of those friendships maintain themselves. And one of the highlights that I always used to love is yours and Carl's year in review yeah, yeah. that you did for public radio. For, and for Michael Putney. Yeah, that was always great. Yeah, Carl, Carl Hyacin and um, God, he, he and I go back a long time together. And one of my favorite things in the world to do is sit down with Carl and talk. And I don't care if there's like, you know, a thousand people listening or it's just Carl and me in a bar. It's just still one of my favorite things. That to would do. be, it's the most amazing, you know, yeah. and, and I think humor keeps you looking young because both of you, <laughs> both of you look really great. And I teased a little bit earlier about your guitar playing, which happens to be really, really good. I no, know you're, this is where you reveal yourself to be. A, you know, a really literate man who knows nothing about music. No, it's not true. You but are the you ringer saying, in that band. I know. But, I, but the, the interesting thing is you and I have talked a lot about music, and I know that music is as much a part of your life as anything else. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, uh, I, my family, and the other value in my family besides humor was music. We all sang all the time, and uh, all the kids played instruments. I played guitar, not well, but I play it. And I played in a rock band in college in Haverford College. It's, like, it's got a great name. What's the, the name? The Federal Duck. The Federal Duck. And we got our name because at Haverford College, where I went to college in the 60s, there was a duck pond. And one night, the members of the band and I were sitting on the edge of the pond. And these ducks uh, came swimming to the edge and got in a line and started walking towards in a line. And our bass player, a guy named Bob Stern at the time, was convinced and he was really convinced that these ducks were working for the government. And they were coming to get us. And if you don't know why that happened, then you were not there in the 60s. That's all I have to say about it. I get it. I, I but anyway, it. we're called the Federal Duck, and, I, um, and we were actually a pretty good college band. And, and um, I, that's how we made our, I made my work my way through college, was, was paying in that band. And then, I rem- and then we, we shoot many, many years later, and I'm, at, uh, I'm in Las Vegas. And I see you guys getting together. You mean Orange County? Was it Orange County? Yeah. Was the first one Anaheim. And I remember you in Vegas too, but you were in Orange. We County. We were never in Vegas. You you, was that no, was Orange were, County uh, where the were, fight happened? Was that there a was, fight? There was a fight. <laughs> Wait, that are happened. you talking about my band or I'm like talking about your band? Okay. A lot of alcohol. I don't remember. Yeah, stuff. there's always a lot. But, but then the Rock Bottom Remainders. Came we got together. the Rock Bottom. We were, we were formed in 1992. A woman named Kathy Goldmark. Uh, who put us together, and um, it was the original band was like Stephen King, Barbara Kingsolver, Robert uh, Robert Fulgham, Ridley Pearson. Um, I'm sure Scott was Scott originally. No, in Scott it? was not originally. In Amy the, wasn't. Amy Tan. Amy was. In oh, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, and I'm sure Mitch, Mitch Album, Mitch Album, no, joined us later. Okay. And and, and anyway, so w- the idea was we would Kathy's idea was we would get together for one night, and raise money for literacy uh 
and we we got together for that one night and we raised money for this was the reason why we're debating whether well we're not debating but i thought it was las vegas but it was anaheim it was for something called the american bookseller association yeah, and it was, convention it was, yeah it's and where it, every year booksellers and publishers get together yeah correct and that was what made it work for us because the whole audience was all books was all booksellers who had been drinking <laughs> a lot and and or else agents of the people in the band so they had a, an incentive to like us that's right. what i'm saying and they loved us we were terrible. I mean, we're, we're bad now, but we were really terrible then. But as we were leaving the stage, Stephen King goes, we ain't done yet. And, and, and 25 years later, we, we played what was supposed to be our last concert or 20 years later. And we still haven't finished because I thought my joke is we are such a bad band that we don't even know how to break up. You know, <laughs> we just keep going. So. Right. No, and then they kept going. And then one of the highlights for, for me is for years and years, they would come to the Miami Book Fair. Yeah. And well, we be, still do when we can. And, You've and, always been willing to, uh, in, in any mutation of the band, we, you've always been, been very... Uh, well, we've also brought in people. We'll put out the call to any of the visiting authors. Some like of the people we Douglas played with. Adams was Judy, there. Judy Collins. Judy Collins. Yeah, Douglas, Douglas Adams. Um, What's her name? Who's saying to do run run? Darlene. Yeah, yeah. Love, oh, Darlene Love. Love. Warren Zevon. Warren Zevon joined played, us. I remember many that. years. And you actually played with Bruce Springsteen too, right? I did. That was also an ABA convention. Right. He got on stage with us because since there's somebody in the band who was connected with him, and uh, we we had completely run out of songs. We're down to one song, which is Gloria. And Gloria is not a complicated well, song. It's one of the highlights of the band. It is. But it's like a simple song, as I like to say, if you take a guitar and throw it on the ground, it will play Gloria. Um, <laughs> so we're we're on stage and up comes Bruce Springsteen. And I'm, first of all, I give him my guitar because I want to be able to say for the rest of my life, Bruce Springsteen played my guitar. And I say, Bruce, do you do you know Gloria? <laughs> he's like, I think I can. He did OK with it, too. And but well, we didn't let him in the band because he hasn't written a book. Well, actually, he has now. So we, yeah, I should yeah, call him up. I'm right, not, I know he's been waiting for me to call him and make it. But anyway, his career took off from that point. Right. No, he was he was already huge at that point. But afterward, uh, the word got out. It, this was in, also in Los Angeles. Word got out that Bruce Springsteen was there. So this like giant mob, mob formed instantly. Of. And we had to kind of go to this safe space and until the police said that it was enough people had left that we could leave. And we're, so we, were, we spent an hour in this room with Bruce Springsteen, who wow. turned out to be really great down to earth. But finally, somebody got up the courage to say to him, so like, uh, what, did, what did you think of the rock bottom remainders? He goes... You guys, you guys aren't bad, but uh, don't don't get any better. You just be another bad band. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's great. Well, that's just we're just we've just scratched the surface with Dave. I mean, there's so many other things to talk about. I promised him he's got to take his dog to the kennel. I do have to get my so dog. I've got to make sure Lucy. that that happens. But what we haven't talked about is the fact that. Dave was in, has been in the writing room many, many times for the Academy Awards. Well, twice. Twice. That's, That's many, many times. Many, many. <laughs> <laughs> he had a TV show based on his life with the late Harry Anderson. Dave has got, Dave is, Dave is a modern day renaissance man, as we have it in Miami. And we're just so glad that I mean, you were with us. I didn't us. know Harry Anderson was there in the renaissance, but. No, he wasn't, but, but you were. But I was. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> so, I am that old. Anyway, it's been a pleasure. Dave. Always it's for me great. too, Mitchell. And, and, and we'll and, have to get a Can beers. I plug your bookstore while I'm talking about this? For those of you listening to this podcast, the best bookstore in the United States is the one we're sitting in right now, Books and Books in Coral Gables. Well, it's many branches all over the world. Mitchell's bigger than <laughs> AT&T, but. 
this is a wonderful bookstore and you are the heart of the Miami literary community, oh, okay. which is thank why you. I'm here. And I'll bet you're going to have lots of great guests on this well, podcast. Thanks, and we got a mean Diet Coke. You do. Well. And I'm still available for um, sponsorship. <laughs> thank you, Dave. My pleasure, man. I hope you like what you heard and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts and also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life.